Does the Mars Singer mark a comeback for Zorro? Can we all agree to end dry January tomorrow? Happy New Year, Ollie, and happy 13th birthday to answer me this. Is it 13? I thought it was 14, or it's the 14th year, isn't it? That Hence 13 years old. We are embarking upon the 14th year. Yes, yeah, no one ever says happy North birthday when you start. No, well, they should, because that does seem to be the most terrifying birthday you could have. <laughs> they tend to congratulate your parents, so maybe... Did people congratulate us? I don't remember. For slithering down the birth canal? No, no, no. No, I mean for birthing answer me this. I feel like we've been congratulated after the fact, but I don't feel like anyone deserves congratulations for doing the first episode of a podcast. No. At the end of last year, we were discussing the logistics of sending items to people who are deployed on ships. And uh, we've had some feedback from Kate, who says, I listened to that episode where you talked about restrictions on mail being sent to a ship. And Ollie seemed confused about why anyone would send dry ice through the mail to recreate a meatloaf video. I wasn't confused, Kate. I was delighted. Kate says, When I was deployed to Iraq, I was there during my birthday, and my parents sent me a small birthday cake through a company specialising in sending cakes to deployed service members. Right. And the cake was packaged in dry ice. Ah. I bet other perishable things like cheeses are also sent with dry ice to keep them fresh. Someone else emailed to say they do send meat as well packed in dry ice because dry ice doesn't melt like wet ice. It doesn't melt, it sublimes, because it's carbon dioxide, so it evaporates. Everything I know about dry ice, obviously, I know from a combination of Top of the Pops and my chemistry lessons at GCSE. <laughs> I just have vivid memories of Kim Wilde standing in, like, four feet of dry ice, singing four-letter word or something. She was our supply teacher. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I do remember is that the teacher at school was very keen to point out we should all be wearing our safety goggles and not touch it under any circumstances. Mm. The FedEx website does tell you how to do it. You need to use a uh, polystyrene foam cooler top. Okay. But um, you mustn't ever place it in an airtight container because potential explosion. Oh. Mm. And I just wouldn't want to touch it. Like, couldn't it freeze your fingers off? I guess that's the worry that it would stick... Like, if it sticks to your fingers, then it keeps on cooling them. You could get frostbite, I guess. But uh, you can put your fingers in liquid nitrogen because it boils away. So there's like a layer of, like, gas between you and the and the liquid. But I don't know if that happens with dry ice. You're telling Ollie as if he doesn't know. But Ollie was the one who got Professor Brian Cox onto the TV in the first place when Ollie worked on This Morning. And I remember Brian Cox pouring liquid nitrogen all over Philip Schofield. <laughs> So Ollie's TV experience trumps my fucking PhD, thank you. Yep, I think so. (laughs) Classic media wankers. Further to our conversation last episode as well about spending Christmas in London, Mm -hmm. uh, Mark has been in touch to say, my family has just returned home to New York from a wonderful Christmas vacation in London. Oh, good. Well, Ollie can have all the credit. Yeah, he says he took my advice. I don't know if he went to the Peter Pan Cup at the Serpentine Swimming Club. I really wanted to do that. I did think about it on Christmas Day. Um, But he does say that they did go to a Boxing Day theatre performance and they even went to see Andy Zaltzman at Ah. the Soho Theatre. Oh, good. All was going great. I even brought with me a last-minute special Christmas present from New York for my wife, a delicate diamond and sapphire bracelet from Tiffany's. Whoa, you're really going big at this Christmas, Mark. Yeah, a delicate diamond and sapphire bracelet from Tiffany's. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Mark says she loved it. As I recall, I think we both kind of liked it. Uh, and <laughs> I'll stop now. Uh, and she wore it to a fancy tea we had with our two teenage daughters at Lioness. Um, do you know Lioness, Helen? I 
don't. That's a fancy tea I've not had. Well, it's a bar, really, and it's run by one of these guys who's won like a million awards and is apparently the world's best bartender. Right. Have you been? I haven't been, but now I've done some research, I'm keen. I'd be having dirty martinis, though, with the cakes. Not going to go to a place with the world's best bartender and order an Earl Grey. Hey, making a decent cup of tea is a fucking art. I I agree, but that's what Claridge's is for. Tragic foreshadowing, says Mark. Mm -hmm. My wife did have some trouble with the clasp. Mm. After two hours of tea and cocktails, we left, walking just a few metres on the waterfront, when my wife realised in horror that the bracelet was not on her wrist. Ah. We looked everywhere. The people at the tea room and the adjacent hotel were helpful, as were the police and the insurance companies. Mm -hmm. However, the bracelet was not found. Shit. I suppose if it's delicate, then it could just slip down into a drain or a crevice. and Or fall into your teacup, and then someone would think that the world's best bartender had just created a a special cocktail that has a bracelet at the bottom of it and assume it was part of the treat. (laughs) I then began to wonder, if someone had found it, or indeed stolen it, how would they sell such an item in London? Hmm. It was quite expensive, and then he puts in brackets... Plus $10,000. Quite is doing a lot of work in that sentence. (laughs) It's the cost of two cars. Yeah. (laughs) I don't shop for jewellery much uh, above the 30 quid mark. So maybe this is the base going rate for a delicate bracelet from Tiffany's. I just wouldn't know. No, I've bought a charm bracelet from Tiffany's for my wife for one Christmas. Mm -hmm. And admittedly, the idea of a charm bracelet is obviously you buy individual extra charms each year. So those go for a couple hundred quid. But the bracelet was, it was, I thought it was expensive at the time, but it was, it was sub 500 pounds. It was not 10 grand plus. This is pricey for Tiffany's. Anyway, we were happy to offer a reward Are you offering me a reward if I find it? If we answer his questions successfully, then I think we deserve one. Uh, He says, Helen, answer me this. Where does one sell stolen jewels in London? Perhaps we can track it down. (laughs) Um, I love that you think I have these connections to the (laughs) jewellery fencing business. I don't know. I would assume that the police that you've been dealing with and the insurance companies... Have more experience. And also possibly Tiffany's would have a better idea. I, I... I assume you got in touch with the Tiffany's branch in London because, I don't know, what would I do if I found this bracelet? Is there something on it that makes it obvious it's from Tiffany's? Maybe that would be my first thing where I took it back to Tiffany's in case they knew who bought things. I'm assuming Mm. they do because each of the items will have a unique mark or number on it. Yes. So from my tentative googling, because I also (laughs) didn't want to be like, where do I sell Where do I sell stolen jewellery? Yeah. So there's a number of things that could happen. And apparently some people have turned up lost and stolen jewellery on local Facebook groups or on eBay or in local pawn shops. But it's pretty rare with jewellery, partly because pawn shops tend to want the official documentation of this item. Yeah, because they'll be responsible for a crime if they take it. Right. If they think it's stolen, they're not allowed to buy it. I think also with high value items like this, they and the police are in touch with each other and the police will check the serial numbers of the missing things against the number of what the pawn shop has got. Yeah, but hold on, that's all honest pawnbrokers. I mean, I think we all know that it's not an industry that necessarily attracts people that are entirely above board. So there probably is a dishonest pawnbroker somewhere who would specialise in stolen goods, let's be honest. It's just hard to know who that is. I don't know who that is. Yeah. (laughs) You, You could contact the people who advertisers like we buy any gold that kind of thing but yes because 
they melt it down, don't they? So then it's really hard to trace. Yeah, but London is a huge place. So you might do it in the area where you lost the bracelet, but they might go home and do it in their local gold melting emporium. But I think what happens often is that they would give it to a fence who would then have like their regular channels for distributing stolen items and or this bracelet would be broken up and made into different items. Yeah, that seems the most likely thing to me. Yeah, if it's pure metal, then they can melt it down and make something else so it's unrecognisable. But this is jewels, which obviously can't be melted down. If it's delicate, I'm assuming it's not massive, single stones, so they can't be cut into different stones, but they could be reset as something else and they could be made into a number of different engagement rings, for instance. So... It's possible that the bracelet has many other lives. It's possible that it's down the side of a sofa in the tea room. Yeah, that's going to be one lucky cleaning lady, isn't it? Here's a question from Laura from London who says, I have a really close friendship with a boy who I've known for the last five years. He's a fantastic, compassionate friend with a great sense of humour. But recently, I've started developing romantic feelings for him. So far, so classic. Not surprising, given the fantastic, compassionate nature of this person. Yeah, exactly. You haven't said anything bad. Like, you know, it's not like, but he has BO. Like, nothing so far. She says, I find him insanely physically attractive. Insanely. I'd love to ask him if he wants something more too, but I don't want to ruin our friendship. Uh Uh-huh. To add to it, I have no idea if he's interested in me because since the start of our friendship, we've jokily flirted with one another. We're very tactile and this has recently escalated to the occasional grinding at parties. What, coffee beans? <laughs> just just spices. Spice mix. <laughs> Do you know how to make occasion rub? <laughs> <laughs> with your pelvis. <laughs> Although we're usually pretty wasted when this happens. Mm-hmm. I've become so accustomed to flirting in jest that I can't tell whether it's progressed beyond being a laugh or not. Wow. Oh. Oh, my God. It's really a terrible time for any drama to happen because A-levels are looming ever closer. So, Ollie, answer me this. Is there a way for me to resolve this without ruining the best friendship I've ever had? I feel like the grinding signifies something more than friendship. I think that's right. I'd, I'd normally resist answering this question at all because of the mention of A-levels there. And so uh, for listeners who don't know overseas, Laura, therefore, is about 17 years old. In a way, there's no right answer because if I say go for it and, it, you know, he breaks your heart, that might be destructive for your life and it might ruin the friendship. And equally, if I say don't, then, you know, actually, usually, honesty is the best policy when you're a grown-up and why not go for it? So I usually just don't offer advice on teenage love dilemmas, but I agree with you, Helen. I think the detail of the grinding... Do you grind with your platonic friends where there's no romantic feeling? I don't. I don't recall you and I ever grinding at a party. We have not ground. Admittedly, the last party we were at together was probably a radio conference. (laughs) Uh, Nonetheless, (laughs) I think that indicates that there's something more under the surface. And actually, if he really is a great, fantastic, compassionate friend and he doesn't like you in that way, then he'll still compassionately understand that it took a lot for you to tell him that you liked him. And so actually, I'm sure he'll still be your friend afterwards anyway. And also, Laura, you're indicating that, oh, mate, what if the grinding is just pure, friendly, non-romantic grinding because Mm. you were drunk at the time? So if you go in for a kiss, say, you could always blame it on the drunkenness if he really was only grinding like friends do. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, that's a good point. And again, wouldn't usually say as advice to a teenager, wait until you're both wasted again and then <laughs> and then move in. But actually, that is a way, isn't it, to just escalate it yourself and just see how he responds. And absolutely, you do then have that get out clause afterwards. So maybe in the presence of alcohol, even if you've not drunk it, because both of you might have been too shy all of this time to make yeah. a move for fear of ruining the friendship. But it does sound like there's stuff going on there. I mean, surely the tradition here is to send out a signal via a friend, isn't it? Uh, you send your mate to go and say to him at some point, as subtly as they can, I think Laura really likes you, and then it's on them if he responds badly. You can say, oh no, she was way out of line, she had no idea. Well, he might not want to reveal to the friend because he might be shy about it. Even to I didn't friend. say this was a good idea, I said this was the tradition. <laughs> <laughs> so, Maybe sick formers don't behave in this way anymore. Maybe it's all done on Instagram or something. All right, granddad. <laughs> it seems pretty obvious to me that they are going to get together right like I, I think it's only that weird mix of teenage hormones which creates any question <laughs> in the yeah. listener's mind that this this ironic boning is is uh, in any way ironic the missing verse from Alanis Morissette's hit <laughs> here is a, a, another super relatable email it's from Lou who says I often buy the two eggs in a pot with spinach from Pret as a quick breakfast uh, I'm with you Lou we've all done it I, I haven't I haven't have you not no, I don't like hard-boiled eggs. I am conscious, Lou says, this is a complete waste of money at nearly two quid. Two quid? Shit. Yeah, you're paying for the convenience. Yeah, but that goes for every- and that goes for mineral water, doesn't it? Uh, and also, I am putting more single-use plastic into the world. Yes. I mean, again, true, but not unique to this product. So, I have started boiling my own and bringing them into work in reusable plastic. Sounds like a good idea. Yep. The only problem is, when I open it in the office, it stinks the place out. Mm-hmm. So, Helen, answer me this. Why are shop-bought boiled eggs odourless, yet homemade ones stink? Well, I wondered whether first the shop-bought ones have been peeled earlier, and maybe the stink has already been distributed. Oh, yeah. I mean, the ones you buy in Sainsbury's, they're sitting on the shelf for a week. So they've been peeled much earlier. Right. But you can preemptively de-stink an egg, so maybe that is what Pret does. Tell us how. So the reason why it stinks is... It's sulfur in the egg white. And when that reacts with iron in the egg yolk, it creates hydrogen sulfide gas, Uh which is the stinker. And apparently the way to stop doing that is firstly not to cook your eggs so hard that they get that green ring around the yolk, which is what the, uh, that's the stinky bit. What you can do is add a few teaspoons of white distilled vinegar to the water in which you're boiling the egg and then bring it to the boil then while the eggs are boiling, the vinegar will neutralise the odours and it won't make the eggs taste any different, apparently. Yeah, because they're still in the shell. But having used vinegar to uh, poach eggs, it does mean that your kitchen smells of vinegar. Yeah. That's true. It's better than smelly eggs in the office. Yeah. You're taking the hit at home to save your co-workers. And apparently also it's a good idea to put the eggs in an ice bath or run them under cold water once they've finished in the hot water in order to stop the yolks turning that grey-green colour. This is useful advice because I've been egg-shamed in the past um, Mm. for eating eggs in an office by friend of the show, Ian Collins. Uh, (laughs) Because I once, I was a guest on his radio show and I took some uh, homemade egg mayonnaise wraps with me. (laughs) Oh, that's so so antisocial, Ollie. You went on someone else's radio show and you took egg sandwiches with you. He used to eat egg and onion bagels before we went on Steve Wright in the afternoon on Radio (laughs) 2. I did, actually. 
It's like you try, you're trying to weaponize your body against your uh, radio <laughs> co-host, Sully. Um, I didn't open it in the studio. I opened it in the open plan office outside, but I suppose oh, that's just, worse. Just to share the smell a bit further. And this was the joke, was between him and his producer at the time, Laura, she told me years later, the joke was they they called me like the Eggman or something similar, (laughs) which I think is harsh. Like, I mean, it's it's not an obscure ingredient, is it, an egg sandwich? But there were certain things, if I was going for like an interview or uh, I I know I was going to be in close personal proximity with other people for work usually, that I wouldn't eat, and eggs is one of them, I wouldn't eat like a prawn sandwich or something or like anything which is really smelly. It was going to make me fart a lot. Well, hold on. So are you saying, regardless of what Helen's just said about vinegar and everything else, are you mm. saying to Lou, no, don't bring eggs into the office. It's antisocial. Don't do it at all. Well, that's borderline because it depends on the job. Like if you're sat doing da- data entry all afternoon, it doesn't really matter if you burp egg a little bit. But if you're in like one-on-one meetings with people where you're discussing their career, your boss like breathing egg on you at that point is really not what you need. Could Lou go just outside, open it up there, waft it around a bit, <laughs> so the egg smell is just uh, distributed on the breeze, and then bring it indoors? It's only be a matter of time before the, the office is forced to have a staff egg-eating room, just to keep everyone separate. If you've got a question, then email your question, yeah, to answer me this podcast, googlemail.com. Smith this podcast to googlemail.com. And Smith this podcast to googlemail.com. Hellcat. And Smith this podcast to googlemail.com. Here's a question from Toby from Sussex who says, Ollie, answer me this. How do the trains? In Thomas the Tank Engine, die. Do they just get old and get scrapped? What about if they have a bad accident and are irreparable yet still alive? Do they get euthanized? Did the good reverend ever write such a thing? Well, I'm going to quote directly from one of the original Thomas the Tank Engine stories, The Bluebells of England. Oh, I know what happens. <laughs> this is Percy, who says, Engines on the other railway aren't safe now. Their controllers are cruel. They don't like engines anymore. This is all a coded reference to beaching, by the way. They put them on cold, damp sidings, and then, Percy nearly sobbed, they, they, cut them up. Do what to them? Cut them up. Oh, cut them up. Cut them up, yeah. Oh, wow, that's extreme. So Percy is talking about um, engines getting scrapped outside of Sodor, to be fair, not within the safe confines of the Isle of Sodor where Thomas the Tank Engine is set, but on the mainland. So there is reference to engines being discontinued. And in one of the other books, Mountain Engines, uh, a train called Culdy tells a story about another train called Godred, who got, I don't know why they had these medieval names, uh, who got left at the back of the shed and piece by piece got reused in other trains until there was nothing left of him. It's a kind of horrifying <laughs> cannibalism story. But then at the end, it does say that Caldy made the story up. Uh, but nonetheless, the idea is still in the children's heads, scaring them all night. Well, there's a number of examples where trains meet 
a sad doom. One famous one is uh, the sad story of Henry, when Henry doesn't want to come out of a tunnel in case the rain spoils his lovely green paintwork with red stripes. Fair dues. He's punished by the fat controller. He's sentenced to be bricked up inside the tunnel for eternity. And they take his rails away, his fire goes out, and then he's stuck there. They've only bricked him up, up to his eyeline, so then he could see all the other trains whizzing around while he rusts to death. But he does escape this eternal punishment because a little while later, Gordon breaks down and they need his help to pull an express train. They did dramatise that one in one of the original TV series and the narrator, then Ringo Starr, it finishes with him saying something like, but I think he should have been left there forever. Don't you? He says, like, like, he deserved his punishment, don't you think? Yeah, it's just like, no. It's a bit extreme. Yeah. I suppose it's quite an interesting comment on uh, workers' rights, isn't it? It's like, once he, he won't do the one thing that the uh, you know the, the controller and the rail system expects him to do he's he's useless he may as well be bricked up indefinitely and and it's an example to others also at some point henry is sent away for a rebuild then has a different shape and a different engine but he still retains his memories so where is the train's soul where's the continuity of consciousness right there was also a cart called sc ruffy and he sang some rude songs about Oliver the Tank Engine. And mm-hmm. as revenge, Oliver pulled him to pieces and S.C. Roffey's remains were scrapped and his death was hushed up as bad for discipline. <laughs> then Oliver the Tank Engine got a lot more respect from the other carts after this because they all lived in fear. Goodness. Wow. I think the thing to bear in mind, though, is that all of these stories were written either during or immediately after the Second World War and about either that period or the period between the two world wars. And so kids were growing up in a world where lots of people were dead and lots of bad things had been happening. So I don't think trains being scrapped would have been... Like, we're much more protective about what children read and see now. Yeah, but it's not just about the trains dying, it's about what it means. Because there's another one, the character's just called the Spiteful Brake Fan, and... (laughs) The spiteful brake van kept trolling Douglas by making his trains late, so Douglas crushed him. And the result in all of these stories seems to be that the violence causes the other trains to be very obedient and fearful. Yes. Which feels like a very Old Testament kind of thing. But I think there's also a class thing going on there as well, isn't there? As we saw with Henry being uh, bricked up when he wasn't performing a useful function for the society. It's also about using violence to intimidate people into keeping in their place and not sticking their head above the parapet tall poppies yeah you're useful because you're useful within the system and that's all but i'm sure if henry's paintwork had been compromised he would have got a load of shit for that they'd be like wow henry's (laughs) really let himself go they would have body shamed him yeah you can't win you can't win in a system of patriarchal violence for those of you who perhaps haven't been keeping up with thomas recently though it's a very different (laughs) world we're in now because now obviously you know audrey's been dead for decades um, and the stories as they're written up now are based on the TV show storylines. And the TV show has got ever more ridiculous in terms of its relation to what trains actually are like. Do they go to space? I know <laughs> I know they don't really talk. But as we're saying, like the, the original Audrey stories had some semblance to reality, like, like the beaching changes to the railways or the ways that steam were being replaced by coal or whatever. They don't go to space now, but they do go round the world. Thomas goes round the world in the latest series of Thomas and Friends. Um, and he meet, and the idea is to bring some diversity into Thomas, which I applaud, oh, okay. because clearly they were all kind of white men disguised as trains before, and, <laughs> and now they do have lots of uh, female characters, and they do have characters with ethnic accents and features and stuff. So that's good, but the way that you have to achieve that is that Thomas like visits China and shit like that, and I mean trains don't do that, do they? I mean maybe once in their life 
they might get on a boat. But Thomas is a regular international traveller, which is weird. It seems unlikely. I suppose if you're the Orient Express, you're a pretty regular international traveller. The Flying Scotsman is a character, and that's fair enough. But these are like your standard steamies, somehow end up in India and whatever. Mm. So there's that. And then the other thing that happens, which has obviously been influenced by Chuggington, which is uh, a a popular uh, TV cartoon featuring animated trains that came out about five years ago, is that the the trains kind of, when they go around the corners and stuff, they come slightly off the tracks like a roller coaster and even fly through the air, which again, I just, I don't think Audrey would have been down with that. What depends if they're carrying passengers? I mean, if they're off on the sort of the weekend, they can do what they want. Well, it's kind of like a Matrix-style special effect that kind of swivels around them. Um, (laughs) There's bullet time in Thomas. Amazing. Yeah. It's it's basically just a way to keep three-year-olds entertained. Three-year-olds are entertained by an empty box. You don't really have to try that hard. (laughs) But actually, even in this modern world, they do phase out some of the trains. Actually, part of the diversity drive was they they dialed down Edward um, because... Edward basically didn't have a character, really. Like, he's he's actually, I think, the first train that Reverend Audrey invented, um, before Thomas even. But really, he's just like a shit version of Thomas. He's like the Letchworth to Thomas's well-in. That's a local reference I can't quite contextualise, yeah. really. You'll have to... One's got a swimming pool? Uh, just well-in improved on everything Letchworth had done. That's all I'm saying. Right, okay. So... Edward has hardly featured since 2017, but they couldn't kill him out of the cast completely. Um, so he's been moved to a different shed or something, and he's in like one episode in 20. But basically, mm. he's a, he's effectively been killed off. But I guess the thing is with Thomas that kids go to charity shops and buy the old books and watch repeats of the old shows. So in a way, you can't kill them off because it's like Ned Flanders' wife, isn't it, in The Simpsons? Like, yeah. she is killed off, but she's in the repeats. So yeah. she's alive. When you've got animation where you can't see the cast visibly degrading and dying, you don't need to kill things off. You could kill them off screen if you're not using them as a kind of morality punishment story, but you don't need to show them aging and then inevitably dying, do you? And you could probably replace the voice actor if need be. Yeah, well, the voice actor of Thomas uh, actually stepped down about five years ago in a pay dispute. Wow. Is your son Harvey into Thomas the Tank Engine? I have not spent much time with it in my life. It wasn't big for me when I was little. Or as an adult. Honestly, I don't like gender conformity, but I mean, I would say 90% of the boys that he knows like Thomas and most of the girls don't. So that's not a surprise that you weren't into Thomas. I wasn't really as a kid either. But yeah, he fucking loves it. And he's got his fourth birthday coming up and he has asked for this is I mean we bear in mind like he could say I want a a self-driving Land Rover, you know, that goes around the garden. Uh, he has asked for a book, which is an encyclopedia of Thomas Trains. Oh, that's Oh, cute. that's amazing. That's like the four-year-old equivalent of the Star Trek technical manual. Yeah, <laughs> it's exactly or that. Or the yeah. Cimmerillion. <laughs> so I'll let you know. It's a big, like, Dorling Kindersley job. I'll let you know what it says about the discontinued trains and how they die. Yes, please. Is it a book that is so big he won't be able to hold it? Yes. So are you also going to have to buy him a lectern just so that you can look at it? <laughs> <laughs> At my village feet, my hotcakes sell like hotcakes. I want to expand my business beyond the school gates. So I make so much money, my wallet would fill a lake. Or a reservoir would do. With Squarespace.com, you can build an e commerce website. Track your hotcake orders and take safe payments through Stripe. Your hotcakes are so hot, they'll set the internet alive. Selling like hotcakes, do you see? Thanks very much to Squarespace for sponsoring this episode of Answer Me This. 
Yes, it is that time of the year to start a new project, whether that is a blog or a shop or, hey, a fully-fledged startup. Why not? Let's gamble. You will need a website for that. Yeah, or even if you just want to do something small, but you think, wow, I've been taking some really nice photos of... uh, And I was going to say feet, but there's actually like a really big market for pictures of feet online. I have mixed feelings about the fact that the foot fetishist that used to write to me annually asking me for a picture of my feet hasn't done so for the last three I don't know if that's waning celebrity or age. They moved on to Seth Rogen's feet. I mean, the answer is still no if they do get in touch, but I'd like the email. Anyway, whatever plan, big or small, that you've had uh, festering away in your mind, you'll need a website for it to confirm its existence to you and to the rest of the world. And why not have a play at designing a website using squarespace.com answer with their two-week free trial? You don't even need to commit any money to the fact until you know that it works. And then if you want to sign up, you can get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain, ollimansfeet.org.uk, for instance, (laughs) see if that's available. You can get that discount if you use our code ANSWER. Here's a question from Emma from Switzerland, who says, I work in the museum field, so I know that despite various forms of security, there are no laser fields, not even in big, fancy museums. You know, the moving laser things, like the ones in classic heist movies. So I assume she's talking about having those red laser beams crisscrossing a room with a precious artefact in it. Yeah, the one that you see Catherine Zeta-Jones's arse go over in the uh, trailer for Entrapment. Right. Or at least I did many times when I owned the VHS for something else that that was the precursor to. While you were researching for your museum heist. (laughs) I was researching for my masturbation habit. (laughs) Ollie, answer me this. Who came up with this trope? Is there an original heist movie that thought of it? Is it from a book? When I first started work, I was a little disappointed in how mundane the security systems actually are. (laughs) Yeah. Are they just a little sign saying, don't touch the artefacts? Yeah, but I mean, it would be, wouldn't it, such a tedious uh, sequence in Mission Impossible if all Tom Cruise had to do was work out what the four-digit pin was. (laughs) The real deterrent to stop people stealing valuable works of art is a criminal record. And getting banned from the VNA. Uh, <laughs> so Emma is right that uh, in reality, the red laser web that you see in those heist movies is rare. Uh, however, not to challenge her experience, but I have seen, I mean, not laser security systems in galleries, but I've seen like infrared signals. We've all seen that, haven't we? Like tripwires basically by the door. You've seen that. Hmm. Like, you might have to stop a garage door closing on an animal, that kind of simple infrared technology. I've seen that for two reasons. I've seen it because they obviously turn it on as part of the alarm system, and I've seen it to kind of, like, stop people getting too close to a famous work of art so they don't have to put a visual block around it. So those do exist, and I suppose that was probably what inspired the film trope, you know, because it's based on an element of truth. But as far as I know, you, you can't get the web of lasers where you could spray it and see it and certainly not that you could see at night so that you know where to duck around and all that stuff. That's bollocks. Uh, but the earliest uh, cliche that I can find in which that trope was exhibited uh, was 1975, which is much later than I'd yes. have assumed. Because like, you get lasers in like, in, like in Goldfinger, famously, when he's got the laser cutter and he's trying to cut his balls off. That's like 10 years before that. But um, the laser museum cliche... <laughs> doesn't appear to emerge until the return of the Pink Panther in 1975. Oh, wow. That's the good one, isn't it? It's the first good one. It's quite revealing, I think, because it's a comedy. It's not in a drama. It's in a comedy. So I think it was a sort of transparently ridiculous concept for a slapstick sequence. And then people believed it. 
I suppose it looks so exciting. And a museum room looking just like a museum room, a lot of people would associate that with a kind of hush and respect. And it wouldn't Mm. necessarily have the drama and menace and threat of something going badly wrong without the laser beams. You're not the only one who thinks it looks amazing, Helen. One of my favourite things that I stumbled across in my research for the answer to this was a Pinterest board showing how you could make a Christmas tree laser grid defence system made from balls of neon yarn. What? So you put neon-coloured yarn, like wool, around uh, your Christmas tree, so hanging from the tree to the to the ground, or like tied around a chair, and then it looks like a laser grid defence system from a museum, like your Christmas tree is a precious artefact being defended from Sean Connery. <laughs> what does that mean you can't get to your Christmas tree, then? You can't put presents under it and stuff? Without triggering the alarms. I think that's the idea, is that on Christmas Day, your kids have to go round the wires to, to get their oh, presents. Oh, so it's a sort bring... of a game. It's a bit of fun. Yeah, but they could bring the whole tree down, which could be a disaster, yeah. of course, because they're not actually lasers. You don't have to attach the wires to the tree. You could attach it to, like you say, chairs and other items of yes. furniture, but then you've still got the problem of like pulling over tables and chairs and things. Yeah, or strangling them en route. But anyway, it looks great. Well, talking of tropes, uh, Ewan from Aberdeen has this question. He says, Helen asked me this, why is old-fashioned style physical comedy known as slapstick? Well, I think this originated with Commedia dell'arte, where you can trace back quite a lot of physical comedy and broad comedy and theatrical tradition. Is that Italian theatre? Yeah. In 16th to 18th century, it was like very, very popular around Europe, and that's kind of where we get Punch and Judy came from Commedia dell'arte, quite a lot of plots, quite a lot of... um, stereotype characters and um there was an implement uh i think they called it a batacchio which was made of two long sticks hinged together and not a lot of the performances were quite violent mm. so an actor would pretend to hit another actor with a stick but the sticks would slap together and make a sound as if you had really hit them with a stick it's almost like a pair of salad tongs but with a very very small gap between them right yeah actually in uh, some countries they did use actual food tongs (laughs) for dramatic noises that's practical so you didn't actually have to beat someone really hard with a stick to get that effect so that's it it's a stick that slaps but not in the (laughs) modern slang style it sure does slap Hello, I'm Emily. And I'm Charlotte. And I'm Anne. And together we are the, the Bronte, Bronte sisters. sisters. I know, why do we both write questions to answer me this? Good idea. Let's see who gets published first. Okay, I've got one, I've got one. Helen and Ollie, it's me, uh, it's Kathy. I've come home and I'm so co- uh, 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 old, won't you let me in your window? No! <laughs> Good, all right, my turn. Uh, Helen and Ollie... How did that mad woman get in my attic? Oh, yes, yeah. very good. Right, why don't we go and spend two years working that into a manuscript? Good idea. What about me? Oh, I shouldn't bother, Anne. No one will read yours. A reminder that if you are enjoying our podcast feed at the moment, but thinking to yourself, oh, what a shame there are only 181 episodes to get through. I'm so deprived. Uh, do remember that there are 200 more episodes for sale through our sister site, AnswerMeThisStore.com. It's the only sibling you have. It is, yeah. I, I, I love it like I would a sister. <laughs> sort of. And you can get our albums there, 
answer me this, love, to get yourself uh, in the mood for Valentine's Day next month. Yes, now is the time of year, isn't it? Now is not the time of year for Answer Me This Christmas. It's not no. one of those sort of wintry albums that you can listen to outside of Christmas time. Like, you do not want to listen to that now for another 11 months. It wouldn't be my choice. But love... But maybe there's a big load of January Christmas people, I don't know. But yeah, I think now is the time for love. Something to warm you up in this uh, chilly time of year. Yes, it's an hour-long special album of us answering questions about romance that you will never, ever hear on the show itself. You can only get it by going to answermethisstore.com and giving us some filthy cash. A tiny amount of filthy cash, though. Just a little dollop. Here's a question from Danny from Streatham, who says, My dad decided in his 60s that he was a naturist. Huh. He regularly does the gardening and sunbathes completely naked in the back garden. Uh, In the summer, he's not a masochist, too. When my siblings and I go to their house, the only way to enter the garden is with a newspaper in front of your face, shouting, Dad, put some clothes on. My friends now refer to him exclusively as Naked Dad. As in, how are your parents? (laughs) What's Naked Dad been up to? That's quite sweet. Uh, My saint-like mum has given up engaging with it and just gets on with being her patient, tolerant self. Uh, Recently, he has upped the stakes and has started doing the front garden naked too. Is it practical to do gardening naked? You would think there's a lot of danger from thorns and insect bites and nettle stings. Apparently most people pass by without comment, continues Danny, but an American woman recently drove past, turned round and drove back, got out and asked if he realised he didn't have any clothes on. She thought he had dementia and had just forgotten to get dressed. Uh, He explained that no, he just doesn't think clothes are necessary when it's warm and there's nothing wrong with the human body. She said he'd get arrested in America and he told her that we're much more sensible here in Britain. Yeah, nudity is not illegal under British law. Uh, There are... A handful of laws that do address it but it kind of has to be deliberately trying to cause outrage or have a sexual motivation and usually naturists would be found not to be in breach of those on the one hand i see and agree with dad's point the media constantly send out terrible messages about how shameful nearly all bodies are bar from a few unrepresentative models when actually there isn't mm. anything wrong with the naked human form we should all be less uptight about it On the other hand, I don't want to see my dad's, or anyone else's, naked ass bending over the flower beds. To be fair, he does put his shorts on when us kids are there, but if he can be considerate of our wish not to see him naked, why can't he extend that to all the strangers passing the front garden, none of whom I feel confident in assuming want to see a naked 75-year-old man raking moss from the driveway? So, Helen, answer me this. Do I have a responsibility to try and persuade him to confine his naturism to the back garden? Or should I follow mum's example and just ignore it? Well, it sounds like he has fully thought through his naturism, especially if he's been a naturist for several years already. And, you know, he's able to have uh, patient discussions with the strangers who consult him over the fence. So it would be your responsibility if you felt like he'd given it no thought at all. Or maybe it wasn't by his own choice, but it is. And I I quite admire the confidence and the rebellion against kind of restrictions that might be prudish or uptight. Mm. I think that the thing that I admire most about naturists is the, the comfort they have with themselves. Yeah, don't know what that would feel like. I mean, I don't feel uncomfortable with myself. I don't feel like I feel uncomfortable with myself. But I do realize when I'm naked that... 
here I am having lost some of the signifiers of who I am. I haven't got my clothes on. That's part of how I express myself. Suddenly I'm more aware of people looking at me, you know, in a changing room or whatever. It's amazing to not feel those things at all, to have suppressed all those thoughts they've gone. It must be very liberating. Although having said that I admire the liberation of being able to do it, in reality, I don't really see the difference between that and just wearing some swimming trunks or or your pants. I mean, it's not that big a deal in on a sunny day, like in this country especially. Or a little apron, yeah. a little utility belt. Maybe maybe that's what um, Danny could do, get him a utility belt for all his gardening tools. So it was like a little loincloth. <laughs> Hanging over his his frontal area. Well, maybe yeah, that's he should be able to be allowed to get his dick out in his own garden. But yeah, but if the concern is basically people can see his asshole or his cock, you can sort of cover those things while still being undressed, can't you? And that might be a good, an elegant solution for the front garden. Yeah, but doesn't that defeat the object? Isn't that saying I'm not embarrassed or prudish about my body apart from the bits of the, my body that everyone's embarrassed and prudish about? Like I think you, I think it's all or nothing. But, it, well, he might, like, he might like the air up his jacksie. He'd still get that. Do you think this would be different if we weren't talking about a 75-year-old man? Because I think people are a lot more habituated to the nudity of young women, hmm. thanks to media and advertising. Well, if it was a 20-year-old woman gardening naked in her garden, like that would still be noteworthy. And as embarrassing, but in a different way for people. I think, yeah, exactly. It would be embarrassing in a different way because the implication would be what if people are sexually attracted to her as they walk past rather than, right. you know, what's her sexual feeling? Her sexual feelings wouldn't come into it partly because she's a woman yeah, uh, and partly because she's young, which is ridiculous. You're right. But it's true. No one thinks that about the older man, do they? They just think, oh, it's all about him being a dirty pervert. It's not that anyone's going to pass his house and get stiffy. Or, you know, it's kind of old people can be so sweet. Yes. You're allowed to be eccentric in that way when you're 70 plus, aren't you? which you're not quite when you're younger. I assume also that your your mum is somewhat a guide in this since she has to tolerate it far more regularly than you. Well, your mum tolerates weird behaviour from your dad. All too much, actually. Yeah. Way too much. What do you think she'd do in this situation? Well, my dad has always had a thing about wanting to live in places where the neighbours can't see. And the house they live in now is such a place but I think it's not because he wants to be nude. And in fact, he he wears many layers of clothes, even in summer. Um, But I think it's because he used to love uh, peeing outside, Mm. as I've mentioned before. As as exhaustively documented, yeah. (laughs) So maybe it was just that. Or maybe it was like, well, I could be nude if I wanted. It's my right. But for him, I think it wouldn't have the same appeal if it was in other people's eyeline, because then it would feel maybe a bit more confrontational rather than just his own private joy. Well, how would you feel if Martin was into this? I mean, I know you don't have Mm. a permanent residence at the moment, but when you did, you know, if Martin's thing was... was, Yeah, but if Martin's thing was walking around the hallways, for example, and corridors of the communal apartment block you used to live in, how would you feel there if he was walking around naked? Would you support that? It would certainly make passing through airport security a bit more straightforward. (laughs) It would, actually. When you put it in those terms, actually, I feel a bit different about it, because I think... It's such close confines when you live in a flat in a building with other people. Yeah. That it does feel a little more like you're impinging on their right not to see someone else naked when they haven't chosen that. Yes. And lots of the legal arguments come down to, it sounds ridiculous, but like proximity of genitals to people that have complained, for example. Right. So someone can be completely innocent, but if they're standing in a queue, you know, it could be considered harassment. I think it's the confinement. And also your dad's in his space and the passers-by are in public space. And there's a barrier between them, presumably, because there's the fence or the hedge of the garden. Right. Whereas if Martin had been wandering the corridors of our old building, it would have been a shared 
private space. Mm. So I think the rules are a little bit different there, but also, yeah, you are trapped closer to that person's nude body. Whereas people have, they have the choice to walk on the other side of the road past your dad gardening if they really don't want to see it. It seems like they would have to come quite close to be able to see over a wall or a hedge. Mm. I, I guess what we're doing really, actually, is outlining why people, naturists, go on group weekends and, and to, right. to venues where they're safe and the knowledge everyone is into this. Yeah, yeah, you don't have to go through all this thought. Although even then, like, I was I was on the Naturism website a moment ago, and, for example, they have an event coming up later this month in Suffolk. It's a naked meal, mm-hmm. £24 pounds a head. Starter is anti-pasty. Beef, it all just sounds funny when you imagine naked people eating it. Beef and barley bean casserole for the main uh, and uh, chocolate torte for the dessert. I would go for less messy food. I, yeah. yeah. Spe- speaking as a hairy man. Beef and barley, that's sloppy. Like, I get a lot of beef and barley in my pubes. And, and not sharing platters, I think. But anyway. Yeah. Something really self-contained like a slice of meatloaf. Or froobs. Froobs. <laughs> What are frubes? Frubes, those little tubes of yogurt. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, good idea. So named because you can't get them on your pubes. Everyone knows that. Um, <laughs> Free from pubes. <laughs> but I was looking at the restaurant to see the kind of place that would allow that event to happen in their establishment. And it looks like a, a nice enough sort of village pub type thing. But it's it's got like wooden chairs and tables. Ooh. Something about splinters. And I was thinking, if I went the next day for breakfast, I'd want to make sure those seats had been well wiped down. You do think about those things. Someone's naked asshole having eaten a barley bean casserole is going to be sitting on it. Just don't overthink public seating in general. That's because true. Because you can drive yourself uh, very upset that way. Mm. The outside world is dirty. There's right. a lot of animal feces, dead insects and shit. Don't, don't worry about someone's arsehole. People it's the least have, of your concerns. People may have wiped their asses on your £10 notes, Ollie, before you got them. That's, yeah, you're making they fair probably points. did. They also do an annual weekend at Alton Towers, apparently. <gasps> oh, that seems bold. Like something Channel 5 should do the documentary on? I agree. Why have I not seen that? Well, maybe there's just only so much pixelation that anyone can handle doing. <laughs> it's also, I was just thinking, if this was your neighbour, after the initial surprise maybe had worn off, you just wouldn't necessarily deliberately look out the window to see your neighbour naked gardening, would you? You'd just be like, oh yeah, that's a thing my neighbour does. Maybe tell it as an anecdote to people, but it's fairly gentle. Yeah, like my neighbours have got a camper van. When that first arrived, it was like, whoa, camper van. Wow, look at that. Oh, where are you going? Oh, you're going to Scotland. Oh, wow, wow, it's got a telly in it. It's got a cooker in it. Don't care now. Don't notice it. Just used to it. Yeah. Same thing with a 75-year-old man's penis. Yeah, that's right. Well, what would you do if uh, it was your father-in-law? He's got a garden. Yeah. Uh... I mean, again, it's interesting to think about it from your own position because I, I wouldn't be—I I wouldn't care. But now I've got children, I'd care because it would provoke a conversation with the children about why granddad does the gardening naked and why everyone else has to wear clothes. Well, maybe because children have quite flexible minds, so they might just be like, "That's a thing that happens." Children are quite curious about bodies, and but they might be like, "Why can't why, why can't I go to school naked or go to yeah, nursery naked?" I think maybe. it provokes a conversation, I, and and I suppose that's. It's not that that's a problem. It's not that the answers are concerning. It's just that maybe you don't want to have that conversation at that time. I suppose that's the thing about nudity, isn't it? If it's if you're not prepared for that discussion at that point, it feels like an imposition. But then lots of other things do. You know, people's political views totally. can do that. But it's amazing, isn't it, that this thing that we all are yeah. is still such a controversial thing. Mm. And people are afraid of talking about it with children, and yet children are probably more fascinated by their own nudity. Yes. And more plastic in the mind to accept ideas I, I suppose the other easy solution for Danny would just be 
only to visit in bad weather. Yes, which actually, fortunately, you know, despite climate change, is still 10 months of the year. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Answer Me This. But of course, to make more episodes of Answer Me This, we need your questions. It has been thus since we started the show 13 years ago. It is the case now. Some things are constant. So send them to us via email or record yourself doing a voice memo and email that. Our contact details are at answermethispodcast.com. And halfway through the month, you can hear a retro episode of Answer Me This in your feed. You have to subscribe to get it. You can also listen to our other work anytime. Ollie, what is on the boil for you? Uh, I do five podcasts. You can discover them all at ollieman.com. My monthly magazine show, though, is The Modern Man. And this month, I meet a lady called Claire and talk to her about when she quit booze. She's a mum of three. And she used to work in marketing, really like boozy drinking environment, and basically got to the stage where she thought it was perfectly normal to parent by drinking 10 bottles of wine a week. Uh, the episode is called The Mum Who Gave Up Drinking, and you can find that at modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Did it make you think about your own drinking habits? It made me think about them, but it hasn't made me change them, I'll be honest. Powerful stuff. But I do... <laughs> I do think that um, it's useful to stick to your own rules, though. That's one of the things she was saying, is that it was when her own rules started sliding and she was drinking wine to cure her hangovers. That was kind of the warning sign for her. Um, so I, I am very much trying to stick to no booze before dinner at the moment. No booze on cereal. Um, <laughs> uh, Helen, what is in the uh, Zaltzman wheel of podcast this month? Well, I have uh, The Illusionist at theillusionist.org and Veronica Mars Investigations at vmipod.com. Yeah, your new show. How's that going? Great. Coming up to the end of the first season of Veronica Mars. And if you've seen that, it's a very tense time. And then recently on The Illusionist, there's been a quiz that you can play along with as you listen for a bit of fun. I've always wondered why there aren't more quiz-based podcasts, actually. Right. You think how popular the quiz format is in daytime telly. The highest score at the moment is 14. So if you can get better than 14 out of 17, then you win You win nothing. Except for <laughs> your satisfaction at being better than everyone else. It's January. Winning nothing is still winning. Yay. And Martin? Yeah, you, uh, I just released an album called Year of the Bird. And you can find that at palebirdmusic.com. Or 40 wherever you, tracks. 40 tracks. You don't have to listen to all 40. You can get a little bit. There's a, there's a playlist on Spotify with the top 14 of 40 tracks which is a bit more like a normal album is that your supercut? that's my supercut. it's a banger we will be back at the beginning of February with a fresh new episode of Answer Me This do join us then bye, bye.